We believe that history is God's story. It's His story. It has a beginning and it has an end. And He oversees everything that happens in His story. And if He is good, this story is going to end good. What did Jesus say about heaven and hell? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 13 says, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The topic of hell is a difficult one for any Christian. And with that in mind, David takes on this challenge in part two of a message he calls, the parable of the two fish. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, people who have their sins forgiven are called together as a body. They are to live as a holy people different from the world and they are to take the gospel as a light to the nations where the Jews fail, the church is supposed to succeed. And the New Testament is about Jesus forming his church, letters written to those churches, and then eventually in the book of Revelation, the fact that one day this Jesus who came initially in a stable in his first coming for the purpose of the forgiveness of people's sins, John 3, 17, says Jesus did not come to judge the world in his first incarnation, but he came to die for the world and to love the world and to give it life. And so the gospel is to be proclaimed to every people on the face of the earth. But one day Jesus is returning in his second coming. In his second coming, he's not coming to love people and forgive them of their sins. He's already done that. He's coming in his second coming to judge people who have refused his gospel and continue to live in their sins. And that second coming is called the end of the days, the end of ages. The prophets in the Old Testament called it the day of the Lord. It's a part of linear history that has a beginning and has an end. So that's Jesus' primary message here is to talk about that day and what that day will be like. And he gives us two insights into that day. First of all, he gives us insights about angels. Angels. Magnificent creatures of God. A third of them fell with Satan and have become the demons. Let me remind you that God still has them outnumbered two to one with good angels to bad angels. But there are bad angels. But the good angels have two major purposes. First of all, they worship God. They love to be in his presence and cry out in Isaiah 6 language, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The second thing they love to do is do whatever God tells them to do to serve you and me who love Jesus. Hebrews 1.14 says that God created the angels to be ministering spirits to his elect. The elect are people who love Jesus. So that means that angels are God's army to be sent to people who love him to oversee, protect, and care for us. I can remember one time in Orlando, Florida, years ago, driving my car in the middle of a rainstorm. Bethany was a baby in the back seat. Marilyn was sitting next to me, and we hit a wet spot. The car swerved out of control, and literally, folks, I felt a hand go on the steering wheel and turn it away from an 18-wheeler that was whizzing by us and missed us by several inches. I'm convinced to this day that that was an angel of the Lord. 
Marilyn and I won't leave our house on a trip without me praying for the angels of heaven to watch over our house. We, we won't drive any long distances without asking God to place angels all around our cars. On plane rides, when they start to get bumpy, ever been there? Let me tell you what I do. I start praying the angels of heaven to be on each wing of that airplane and to steady it because God said the angels of heaven are sent as ministering spirits to care for God's people. Let me give you one thought. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1, that verse says sometimes God takes the righteous home to spare them from evil. You know, I've lost my mom and dad over the last five to six years to both of them to terribly long, difficult illnesses. I am convinced they're in heaven. I'm convinced they have perfect resurrection bodies. And I'm convinced also, dear friends, that even if they could come back to this mess, to this squalor, to this disease, sin-infected world, they would not. But I'm sure what they are saying to the Lord is, can't wait for David to come home. Can't wait for him to come be with us. If you love Jesus and your loved ones love Jesus, you will see them again. You will. The angels have as a part of their work ministering to God's elect. Do you ever call upon them? Do you ever ask them to come help you? I believe they are the most underutilized power of God available to us. And we just forget about them. They cared for Jesus in the wilderness in the temptation narrative. He was so exhausted after doing battle with the enemy, the angels of heaven came and ministered to him. They were present at his birth narrative. They sang glory to God in the highest in it, Chelsea's Deo, what we sing during Christmas time. And isn't it interesting, if they are an angel army, if they are God's army, that means those who came to sing at Jesus' birth were a military choir. Don't you love military choirs? Wow. Angels, use them, folks. They are here and available to you. But also remember that one of their jobs at the final day of the Lord, the final judgment, is to separate the good and the bad fish. Somehow the ones who will know who's naughty and nice isn't Santa Claus. The one who will know who's naughty and nice are the angels of heaven. And God is going to let the angels be the ones who separate the good and the bad. The bad are going to go to a place that has a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other places, it's called hell. And I don't particularly enjoy teaching on hell. I like for people to like me. I want to be accepted by the public, and this message is not popular. But my desire is to be more faithful than popular. Jesus is the one who most often taught about the reality of hell. And he said the angels of heaven are going to have as the assignment separating people, the genos, the ethnicities, and some are going to go to hell. Now, a fiery furnace, is that metaphorical or real? I don't know. It's going to be awful, though. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, I've told you before, I think what that means is eternal regret. For those of you who have ever missed a six-inch putt, or a wide open layup, or just made a stupid mistake, what do you do? Ugh. It's gonna be people who have denied Jesus, resisted him, and for eternity they're gonna go, Ugh. 
Now, as you look at the reality of hell, there are four different interpretations that people have. Let me go over them real quickly. First of all, there is nihilism. This is the view of those of you who are spiritual skeptics. You're atheists, agnostics. You don't believe in God. And you basically believe since there's no God, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow I may die. You live life on your own terms. You don't believe you're accountable to anybody. You certainly don't believe in a final judgment. What I would say to you is what the Apostle Paul said to you in Romans 1. First of all, look at conscience. If you go throughout the world, people groups all over the world all believe in some kind of moral code. Every culture believes it's wrong to torture children, for example. Where did that come from? Is that a social construct of every nation on the face of the earth? I don't think so. The only answer can be God put his moral code within the hearts and minds of every person who's ever lived. Secondly, not only look at conscience, look at creation. Look at how it all fits together. Look at its glory and splendor. And you're going to believe that there was a big bang and all of this just came together in its perfect ways like we know it today? My dad used to say, that's like saying an explosion in a printing press would create an unabridged dictionary. It's just nonsensical. So for those of you who are nihilists or atheists or agnostics, I invite you to look at conscience and creation, but more Jesus' teaching who came from eternity to tell us there's a day of the Lord. The second view is what some people call universalism. Uh, universalism is the belief that God loves everybody and God is perfect love and the, so therefore he can't let any person not be in his love forever. So in the expanses of eternity, every person will one day come to faith in God and love him. Love wins is the title of one book that someone wrote. The problem with that perspective is this pesky biblical word aenos in the Greek. The word means everlasting. And Jesus is the one who said that when people die, they either go to Ianos life or Ianos death. That's irrefutable for universalists, and they've never been able to answer it. Thirdly, there are people who are annihilationists. They believe in annihilationism. What does that mean? It means that when people have been separated from God in hell and they're separated from the source of all life, that eventually they'll cease to exist. And that's become increasingly popular even in some biblical circles. The problem is this pesky little word called aenos in the Greek, where Jesus himself said some will go to everlasting aenos life and some will go to everlasting aenos death. And everlasting means everlasting, and it refutes annihilationism. Fourth and finally, the only other option is eternal separation. And I would argue with you today that it makes perfect sense. God has given all of us free will to choose whether to love him or not. We're not automatons. We're free moral creatures. And love can only exist if we can freely choose to love. If people do not want to love God, why in the world would you want to spend eternity with him? Moreover, if God is perfect love and you don't want to spend eternity with him, why would he want you to spend eternity with him? 
Hell is the natural monument to the gift of free choice that God has given every human being. That's what Jesus taught. And he's the only one I've ever known who's come from eternity to tell us about the reality of eternal things. He said, at the end of the age, the angels will come and divide the good and the bad fish. The good go to everlasting punishment. The good go to everlasting life and the bad go to everlasting punishment. Which begs the question, who are the good fish? Who are the bad fish? So glad you asked. Biblically, there aren't many different groups of people. There are two. You are either righteous or unrighteous in the sight of God. What does righteous mean? It means you've been forgiven of your sins. It's a legal term. It means that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you believe that he paid the price for your sins on the cross that you should have paid. He was a substitution for your life on the cross. And when you accept his free gift of eternal life, you are declared forgiven and righteous. God's heavenly gavel has sounded in the recesses of eternity and declared you not guilty. You are righteous in the sight of God. And those who have not received that gift of forgiveness are called unrighteous. They are unforgiven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes these words. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I, I preached you Christ crucified, that his death on the cross absorbed your sins so that you wouldn't have to have your penalty placed upon yourself for your sins. Now, now whenever that's preached, the religious moralists, the Jews, are offended by that teaching. When they, they hear it, it's, it's, it's like a stumbling block. They trip over it. Why? Because they want to believe in what Paul calls works righteousness. There, there are two kinds of world's religions, works righteousness or grace righteousness. Works righteousness is basically karma. You get what you deserve. Dear friends, aren't you glad you don't live in karma anymore if you're a follower of Jesus? You don't get what you deserve. I can't speak for you. I don't want to get what I deserve from God. But I believe God has intervened on my behalf. But when I teach that there are religious moralists who believe they can just keep on working harder and one day God's going to go, you're good, welcome to heaven. One day a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher. Remember Jesus' response? He asked the question, who alone but God is good? Only God is good. You and I aren't good. We occasionally do good things because the image of God stamped on our lives, but basically at our core, we are selfish. Every single one of us at different times in our lives have said to God, my cookie, my life, get out of here. We need a savior. We need to be righteous. And that's what Jesus did. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, listen to this verse. Paul said, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we, Christians, might become the, what's the rest? The righteousness of God. Do you have the righteousness of God in your heart? Let me land this airplane. What does this mean? First of all, for you personally, it means that you are never beyond the grace of God. And he wants you to believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He wants you to believe that if you accept him as your Lord and Savior, that when he looks at your heart, he does not see your muck, your junk, your disobedience, and your my cookies. He sees the righteousness of God. And as Jesus asked his disciples, I ask you, do you understand this? Your answer has eternal implications. Do you understand this? But not only personally, historically, we believe that history is God's story. It's his story, history. It has a beginning and it has an end. And he oversees everything that happens in his story. And if he is good, this story is going to end good. And that means no matter what may be happening in the world, our trust is not in what's happening with ISIS in the world. Our trust is not in boardroom decisions or bathroom decisions. Our trust is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, who oversees history. Would you give him glory right now? You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in a conversation about how we sometimes criticize in others what we hate in ourselves. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, Thank you, Bart, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry, and, and more importantly, about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and we play bingo after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young, young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org and there you can see some of our photo galleries, you can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. 
I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jen. I love being with you every day. It's wonderful to have this time with you. Well, thank you so much. In your morning e-devotions, you've been in a series that you're calling Davidisms. And one that I read last week made me think. You said, we criticize in others what we hate in ourselves. Can you talk to us about that? I can. This one's for my dad. Hmm. And he would hear me sometimes take shots at other people. And then he would tell me, David, what is it within yourself you don't like very much? Oh, wow. (laughs) Because he would say what you're criticizing in others is oftentimes what you self-loathe about your own self. So it's something I've learned in life, Jen. It's a hard lesson to have learned, but Mm -hmm. it's an important one. And I want to share it with everyone today. Most often, We criticize in others what we hate in ourselves. Folks, did you know that research shows that roughly half the words we use are negative? About 30% are positive. The other 20% are neutral. Now think about that. Consider how God intended us to use words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. In another place, Paul says, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Our words should be used to edify others, not to tear them down. Let me ask everyone, how do you use your words to encourage or discourage? Do a word inventory. Think especially about the words you use when criticizing others. Then be honest with yourself. Evaluate your heart. Is there self-loathing? Are these criticisms the very things about yourself you're most ashamed of, embarrassed by, feel guilty about? You know, someone once said, when you're pointing one finger at somebody, remember there are three underneath pointing back at you. Oh, wow. I think that's a great Mm -hmm. illustration. If you do believe that maybe your words are so self-critical because they're things you hate about yourself, run to the throne of grace. Hmm. Receive God's mercy anew, Hebrews 4.16. Experience his deep healing love for you, his forgiveness and kindness, his goodness and grace. You don't ever need to self-loathe. God loves you so much. You're a child of God. You're a prince or a princess of the king of kings and lord of lords. You have royal blood pulsating through your veins. Believe that about your true identity. Be healed. Become whole. And then you'll stop criticizing others. Immediately, use your words to edify others. And here's one, Jen, even your enemies. Wow. Jesus said so in Matthew 5, And the next time you catch yourself using negative words, stop and remember, we criticize in others usually what we hate most in ourselves. Well, this is so good. And what I'm thinking, my mom wheels are spinning. And usually I find that the child I'm I'm kind of butting heads with, and there's a reason, is because they're doing something that I actually do. And it it just is this tension. So I really can see this. A part of you that you really hate, you see in your child, and you become mostly critical of that, even more so with other bad behavior in your other children. That's right. Exactly. This is is interesting. Thank you. Well, it's a fascinating truth, and I think it's something we all need to consider. 
We use our words negatively, and when you criticize others, stop, folks, and think, uh, is that an issue I hate about myself? Mm. Is that something in my heart I self-loathe? And then give it to the Lord, receive his grace, and stop the criticisms. Use your words to edify other people. That's God's intention from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And everyone, if you'd like to receive a daily Davidism, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can receive it in your inbox in written form every morning at 7 a.m. From my heart to yours, a gift of grace free of charge to help your day begin with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly HopeCast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking that you pray for godly leadership in our city.